1: This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Murtaza Hussein. Last month, Turkey completed a historic election that saw its incumbent strongman, Tayyip Erdogan, return to power. Erdogan has now been the leader of Turkey for two full decades, a period in which the country has been increasingly transformed into its own personal fiefdom. The Turkish economy is presently in a state of crisis due to inflation and currency devaluation, while its political system has become polarized to the point of dysfunction. Turkey is a NATO member country, straddling both Europe and Asia, and its future political and economic fate is a matter that will determine the stability of both those regions. To discuss the future of Turkey in the Erdogan era, we are joined by Gonul Tol, founding director of the Middle East Institute's Turkey Program, and author of Erdogan's War, A Strongman's Struggle at Home and in Syria. Gonul, great to have you with us.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So, Gonul, first, can you give us some background for our listeners on these recent elections? Specifically, who were the major challenges to Erdogan? And what segment of the Turkish population did they represent or segments of the population did they represent in contrast to his base of supporters?
0: Well, there were three candidates running uh, Murtaza for the presidential bid. And obviously, uh, President Erdogan, who has been ruling the country for the 20 years, was on the ballot and challenging him is Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. He was the candidate of the anti-Erdogan opposition. He led a large six party group of uh, of coalition and they are ideologically very diverse. You have Islamists in their ranks, you have uh, nationalists, secularists, uh, radical secularists uh, and people in between. So that's a a group of people that are very diverse uh, ideologically, so Economically diverse uh, group of people, and then we had the third candidate, Sinan Oan, uh, who was the candidate of the far right. He ran on a platform, a very anti-refugee platform. There are uh, millions of Syrian refugees in the country, and there's a strong nationalist backlash against their presence, and also an anti-anti Kurdish, very nationalist campaign. And he captured uh, a little over five percent of the vote.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that has been discussed in recent years is the democratic backsliding in Turkey, which we want to talk to you more about uh, in the course of this conversation. But one thing I was very curious to get your take on, in the context of this election, you know, we had some reports, including uh, at The Intercept, about international election observers who were arrested and expelled during the, the vote counting. Were these elections fair, or how do you describe, on the spectrum of free and fair, how far did they fall on the fair side, and how far were they controlled?
0: the elections were highly unfair and I I would say partly free. Now, I have a problem with those concepts which I will come to in a minute but let me let me first talk about why the elections were unfair they were unfair because the the playing field had been heavily tilted in Erdogan's favor he controls state media ninety percent uh, of Turkish media is controlled by Erdogan and he, he controls state resources state institutions and he put them to use uh, during his campaign uh, on the other hand his most significant opponent, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, lacked those resources. So the playing field in that regard was heavily tilted in his favor. For instance, Erdogan got 32 hours of airtime on the state broadcaster TRT, while Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu got only 32 minutes. And that's just one of the things that that he had used in, in his favor. So it was very difficult for Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu to get his his message uh, across, and Erdogan used fake videos on the campaign trail because a lot of people, and and we're mostly talking about people who live in the heartland of Anatolia. Uh, they're not not necessarily on Twitter. They don't have an alternative. Source of information other than the pro-government media. So what whatever Erdogan says is a fact for them. So so I think all those things made made it very difficult for the opposition to compete. Uh, and, and when we talk about autocracies, we usually call them competitive authoritarian regimes, right? So in that regard, I think in the Turkish context, the the elections were not as competitive because those who were trying to challenge Erdogan did not not have a full platform. They did not have the resources. And that means the voters were not provided the full spectrum of options. So uh, that covers the unfairness Of the vote, and when it comes to whether the vote was free or not, uh, it was partly free because uh, Erdogan uh, jailed uh, one of his most popular opponents, Selahattin Demirtas, is the former co-chair of the pro-Kurdish party, and in 2015 he did a great job in terms of challenging Erdogan. Captured the historic 13%, which denied Erdogan's AKP the parliamentary majority, and he was sent to jail shortly after that. So I think. if if he had been out campaigning, uh, talking to people, I think his party, the pro-Kurdjieh HDP, would have done better and that would have worked in Kılıçdaroğlu's favor. And another opponent, Istanbul's popular mayor from the opposition party, Ekrem İmamoğlu, was threatened by a a court case by Erdoğan. So all those things really should make us question whether An unfair environment is really conducive to a free vote. In other words, if the playing field is so tilted in favor of the incumbent, can we talk about the vote being free? So if Erdogan has done so much to make sure that he controls the field, so on the day of the election, the ballot box is already stuffed. So that's why I call it partly free.
1: So, Gunal, you described the Turkish opposition as comprising this very wide spectrum of different parties and forces, often many of which are at odds with each other in Turkey, including uh, radical secularists and uh, Kurdish groups and Islamists and so forth. Can you give a sense of the context in which all these different groups were compelled to come together against one party? How did that come about? Why do they feel that the need to put aside their ideological differences was more important than... Uh, accepting another AKP term.
0: Well, that is the only way for them to stand a chance at winning, right? Because, and there are two reasons for that. Usually, again, in autocracies, and Turkey has become a highly personalist autocracy, for the opposition to have a shot at bringing down the incumbent through elections, they have to have a united stance. They have to be united. The opposition has to be united. And what makes a unification among uh, different political parties in the opposition even more urgent in the Turkish context is the fact that Turkey in 2017 with the referendum switched to a presidential system. So under this new presidential system, one has to capture 50% one plus vote to to be able to win the elections. Under the parliamentary system, and Erdogan came to power in 2002 and Turkey then had a parliamentary system. Under the parliamentary system, you can capture 34% of the vote, let's say, and that's what the AKP Captured, and you could still have 60 plus percent of the seats in the parliament because of the specifics of Turkey's electoral law. But under the presidential system, you need a majority to win. And that simply makes a unification a necessary thing for, for the opposition. Otherwise, they would not have stands to that chance. So let's say the CHP, which is the secularist main opposition party, they usually command somewhere between 20 to 28 percent of the vote. That's not enough, obviously, for them to win if they ran on their own and others as well. So that's why the presidential system as well as the specifics of Erdogan's personalist autocracy, push them together?
1: So one thing that's very interesting, Gunol is in Turkey today, you're following, uh, the economic situation is very poor. Uh, there's very rampant inflation that's been taking place. It has a very negative effect on the Turkish middle class and really all Turks. And in addition to that, in the last few months, there were these devastating earthquakes which took place in Turkey, which killed tens of thousands of people, Uh, and seem to be credibly, at least in part, attributable to government mismanagement. A lot of the cities which are affected by the earthquakes were in known fault line areas, and yet uh, shoddy or unregistered construction seemed to have been allowed, which allowed to far greater damage than may otherwise otherwise have taken place. So there seemed like a lot of reason for public anger or rejection of the incumbent government uh, you know, people don't have food, their things are meat is becoming very expensive for people in Turkey, and yet you still saw the incumbent government manage to overcome and win this election, which to me was very, very surprising for a number of reasons. Not because I didn't know that the government is popular, but you know, it's not something usually in many countries when the economy is suffering so poorly, it's very much to the detriment of the incumbent. Can you explain how it came about in Turkey that? To tactically, how did Erdogan manage to overcome that and maintain his base of support such that he could still prevail in the election?
0: Well, that's the million-dollar question, right? How do underperforming autocrats retain power? Well, some might say that by simply stealing elections or by manipulation or coercion. And in some autocracies, that might be true. But in others like Turkey, uh, autocrats have Uh, some of them might have genuine popular appeal. Now, that's not to say that the uneven playing field that we just talked about and manipulation um, did not play a part in Erdogan's victory. But I think here there is a larger context that we all need to focus on. And the big question is, how does one explain that Erdogan's mass appeal despite his poor economic performance and the many problems his policies have created for the country, including the the millions of, of refugees. So I think the most fundamental background factor is that Turkey is a troubled society. It is a deeply polarized country with existential anxieties, right? And feeding those existential anxieties are several factors. One of them is the historical rift between Turks and Kurds, which has been exacerbated by the war in neighboring Syria. Kurdish gains there heightened Turks' fear of an independent Kurdish state carved out of Turkish territory. And Erdogan added fuel to the fire, heightening those fears. And he wrote the ensuing Nationalist wave to consolidate his his power, and on the campaign trail, he used fake videos linking his opponent to the outlawed uh, PKK. The terrorist organizations. He called the opposition terrorists. He made false claims that his opponent would release the PKK's jailed leader, Abdullah Öcalan, if he were elected. And although the PKK um, has not mounted large scale attacks inside, inside Turkey's borders recently and has been weakened by Turkey's military campaign in neighboring Iraq, I think Erdogan's fear mongering the anxieties of a society that believes it's already under assault by millions of of Syrian refugees. So that brings me to the second factor, why there's so much heightened anxiety. Anti-refugee sentiment runs high in today's Turkey. Both among nationalists, Kurds, every segment of the country fears that the presence of those Syrian refugees is a threat to them. And It was Erdogan's open border policy that led to the influx of refugees in the first place. Yet for many Turkish voters, only Erdogan can fix that problem. And also, if you look at the earthquake zone, yes, the country was hit by a devastating earthquake. Eleven provinces have been hit. Tens of thousands of lives have been lost. And that is in itself is a huge source of anxiety, right? People don't know what's going to happen next. They don't know when their cities will be built. So that's a big source of anxiety. And yet, I think those growing anxieties drove voters to support the very man whose slow response and years of corruption and policy of granting construction permits and amnesties to unsafe buildings have really exacerbated the death toll. So that is, I think, you can only explain that by looking at um, how people behave during times of extreme radical uncertainty. They usually rally around the leader. And Erdogan, and this is from a conversation that I had with an earthquake victim who had never voted for Erdogan before, uh, but he told me that he was going to in this election. And he said that he really respects Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, the opposition candidate, that he's always voted for for his party. Uh, And yet he was concerned that Kılıçdaroğlu was going to have a full plate if he were elected. From switching to the presidential system, to solving the country's Kurdish problem, to tackling economic issues, that his family... And, and the earthquake victims were not going to be on his priority list. And on the other hand, he said, Erdogan is a dictator, which means he can make things happen faster. So I think that really explains how anxiety can drive voters at- times of uncertainty like this one, to support underperforming autocrats. And Erdogan did a masterful job in terms of capitalizing on all these anxieties. So I think his resilience is the product of his ability to convince popular majorities in Turkey that he and he alone can fix the problems that he created.
1: So Erdogan has been ruling Turkey for two decades now, and with this electoral victory, could be another five years on top of that. Can you tell us a bit about the evolution of his government and the style of governance over this time? One thing that's very interesting is that, particularly in the West, his reputation has sort of changed over the course of these two decades. I think people may remember, it was quite some years ago, but he was seen almost as a Democrat, or very much a reformer, and certainly an economic reformer, uh, very widely brought, at least among many uh, observers of Turkey, can you tell us a bit about, you know, has he changed or has he always been the same or has something in the circumstance of Turkey changed to let, led to a change in his governing style? How has his rule evolved over this very, very long period in which he's been in power?
0: Well, uh, some of his change, his, his policies, I should say, his narrative, his policies have changed. Some of them, some aspects of it have remained the same. When he first came to power, he framed his party as a conservative democratic party. He told people that he was not an Islamist anymore. You know, he comes from an Islamist background. And when he first came to power, there was a lot of anxiety around his, his election victory, particularly among the secularists of the country, thinking that here we have, we have an Islamist in power. And he has a strong popular mandate Um, and he is going to change the country to the core and he will reconstruct the country in his image, in an Islamist image. So that was the fear. And yet that did not materialize immediately, right? Because he, I think up until 2011, there were some things that he did well for the country. The the Turkish economy was growing. He carried out democratization reforms. So when he came to power, he was not the leader that he is at the moment in terms of policies. But on the other hand, I think from the first day on, he was always a populist, He came to power claiming that he was an outsider, that he was someone that who could get things done. And this is not really unique to Erdogan. If you look at other autocracies too, I mean, compared to the 20th century, uh, Stalins, Hitlers, Mussolinis, we live in a completely different era where these authoritarian leaders, they resort less to coercion. They come to power through uh, legitimate uh, elections, and yet they take those democratic institutions and ban them to the point where the, the country, you cannot call it a democracy anymore. They establish their one-man rule, and there is no Rubicon. There is no point where one day you just wake up and you find yourself in a a completely dramatically different autocratic country. They take incremental steps. So Erdogan came against the background of extreme uncertainty, going back to my original point. And I think this is, this can be said for other countries from the US, from Italy, European countries, Brazil, other countries where autocracy is, is on the rise, right? So the 1990s were a lost decade for Turkey. A lot of people had lost hope and faith in democratic institutions in liberal democracy because it wasn't delivering for them. Economically, from a security point of view, it was just liberal democracy was not doing the trick for them. So in the 1990s, Turkey had this huge economic problems. Um, You had coalition government after coalition government, which fed the sense that institutions don't work, governments don't work. You had a corruption, you had a peak in, in terrorist attacks. So there was this great sense of frustration in the political class. So Erdogan came against that background, claiming that I am the man that you need. I can fix things. I can bring stability, I can bring prosperity, I can help those who have been marginalized by this corrupt system and those corrupt elites. That's how he came to power and that's what makes him a populist. And yet he didn't embark on a project of undermining. I mean, he did start. There are in, in retrospect, he, there were a lot of red flags even in, in, in his early years. And yet they didn't, they didn't culminate in a dramatic change that changed Turkey's democratic rule from democracy to autocracy overnight. So he took incremental steps and he used foreign policy to furnish his brand. Initially it was his conservative democratic brand later once he managed to sideline his opponents and centralize power and that happened in 2011 by 2011 he had sidelined the secularist establishment and managed to bring under his control media the state institutions bureaucracy uh, and even even business community and from then on he started taking steps to establish his one-man rule. Again, as as I discuss in my recent book, Erdogan's War, he turned to foreign policy. Foreign policy played a key role in his efforts to consolidate his rule. So in a nutshell, Turkey's transformation, degeneration, I should say, from an imperfect democracy to an autocracy did not happen overnight. Erdogan did that by taking incremental steps, by exploiting the the cleavages, social-political cleavages, pre-existing cleavages in the country, and again using foreign policy. And I think it received a lot of help from Western countries and also from his own domestic opponents.
1: So, you know, in Turkish history, there's been this cycle of military control and uh, coups and periods of authoritarian rule or authoritarian-type rule interspersed with democratic attempts to uh, expand uh, Turkish political part participation. Can you talk about how Erdogan fits into that history or what sort of uh, history informed his own actions and worldview in becoming the type of leader he is today?
0: Well, he comes from an Islamist background. So if you look at Turkey's history, the secularist military played a, an oversized role in politics. And thanks to that, Islamist parties and others as well have been shut down, their leaders uh, persecuted. And Erdogan, actually in 1995, and that was when we had an Islamist prime minister, he was forced to step down by the military shortly after taking power. So Erdogan witnessed those years as a young Islamist, and he saw that Directly clashing with the country's generals was not a great idea if one wants to survive politically in the Turkish context. So what those years the 1970s, 80s and 90s had taught him was that he had to find other ways of challenging and and curtailing the influence of the secularist establishment and he found That in Turkey's EU membership. He thought that instead of having a direct clash with the military, if he embraced Turkey's EU membership, he could be able to sideline the military in the name of democratizing the country. Because EU membership required a smaller role, uh, curbing the influence of the generals in Turkey's politics. So that's exactly what he did. He campaigned on, when he first came to power in 2002, he ca- campaigned on a very pro-EU, pro-reform agenda. So I think those years, the, the way they informed his initial years in power was that, that he had to embrace a pro-reform and pro-EU agenda if he wanted to defeat the generals. And and he pretty much achieved that. Again, also with help from his own opponents, the missteps taken by his opponents helped him a great deal. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Can
1: you talk about how, in Turkish politics, the issue of culture war? It tends to be used by politicians to galvanize support, and certainly by Erdogan in the past election. One thing that's been very interesting, and you mentioned, uh, Gunal, that the secular establishment was very, you know, at the forefront of sort of holding on to power through coercive means for many, many years. But the opposition to Erdogan in this case came from a really diverse set of people who have a lot that are not in common with one another, including Islamists who used to be aligned with Erdogan, uh, Kurdish uh, nationalists or people supportive of Kurdish rights in in Turkey, and the same secular establishment you're talking about. Uh, How did Erdogan manage to portray uh, this sort of very diverse culturally set of opponents as being part of one homogenous opposition to The type of politics which blends religion, nationalism that he represents.
0: You know, modern day autocrats, as I said before, they don't have to resort to coercion to convince people to vote for them, right? They can spin the narrative. And that's how they manage to build and secure consent. And it's easy, very easy to spin the narrative if you control uh, the country's media. And that worked was became a great advantage for Erdogan uh, because again on the campaign trail he often appealed to the nationalist sensitivities of of turkish nationalists for instance by saying the opposition candidate is in alliance with with the terrorist groups so if you don't have a an alternative source of information it's easier for you to believe that false narrative And Turkey is a country where nationalism runs really deep and it cuts across party lines. So you have nationalists among Islamists, you have nationalists, secular nationalists. Nationalism is just everywhere. And if you play to that sentiment, it really pays off. And in the past, culture wars has always been part of Turkey's politics. But I think Erdogan has taken this to a whole new level. The country has never been as polarized. So, And you can tell that by looking at the election results, right? Erdogan captured 52% and his opponent captured 48%, which means that it's almost 50-50. Half of the country thinks that they are in a war for their survival and the rest thinks that if you lose power, they're going to lose everything. So if the elections are framed... As an existential war, what politicians say on policy issues, policy stances don't really matter, right? Because they stick to their own leader. Because this is just a war to survive.
1: You know, it's it's so interesting. In the Turkish election, there was extremely high participation rates. I think higher than ninety percent, which is very unheard of in the U.S. election. You'd say. And on one hand, it seems like it's a good thing because people are interested in democracy; they want to participate. But it, on the other hand, it does kind of speak to the same dynamic you're referring to, that the ex- election just seems existential. So you need to vote because the stakes are so high that, uh, you know, everything could come to an end if the wrong party wins. People believe that, uh, whereas in other countries, the stakes may be a bit lower, and that drives lower participation. It's a kind of interesting quirk. But, you know, one thing I was really fascinated, and you've written about in the past, is that, you know, Turkey's changed at a very institutional level as a result of being governed in the way it has over the past two decades. And I think there's something which is very important because, you know, even for non Turks, Turkey is a very, very important country. It's a NATO member country. Uh, it's in a very strategic location uh, economically and militarily. Its influence is very, very important both in Europe and the Middle East and Central Asia. How have Turkish institutions transformed? And I assume they've transformed for the worse, governing by past how autocracies tend to manage themselves. How have they changed institutionally? Do things in Turkey work as well as they used to? And how might we expect those changes to evolve if uh, it keeps going down the path it has in the past few years?
0: Well, Erdogan basically undermined institutions. And again, this, this is not unique to Erdogan. That's what autocrats do. And even in this country, I mean, if you remember Trump, I mean, that's what they do. They equate the country's institutions with the corrupt elite and they try to ban the rules, undermine those institutions. Uh, and they claim that they represent the real people. And uh, and those institutions are part of the political culture that has been created and constructed by the corrupt, quote unquote, political elite. So that's their narrative. So one of the first things that they do once they consolidate power is is they start attacking those institutions. And that's exactly what Erdogan has done in the 20 years uh, that he's been in power. Turkish democracy was never perfect right? Even before Erdogan came to power, it was an aspiring democracy. Yet there was something that was dramatically different uh, between pre-Erdogan years and Erdogan years, and that is uh, before Erdogan came to power, there were institutions. Uh, Policymaking was done at the institutional level. Let's take foreign policy, for example. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs was key to foreign policymaking. Uh, So things were a lot more predictable. You had people who had the credentials, necessary credentials to be holding key positions, for instance. And the country's education system, it really helped Turkish bureaucracy in terms of feeding excellent, very educated people. When I was a kid, there was a university exam, for instance, and I come from a working class family. And yet, thanks to that education system, I managed to go to the country's top university. So universities and the education system provided upward mobility for lower classes. So things, there were things that didn't work, but uh, but institutions did work. But right now, there are no institutions. One man calls all the shots, Again, giving the example of foreign policymaking, Ministry of Foreign Affairs have long ceased to be a player in foreign policy making. Its inputs are not necessary. It's Erdogan makes all the decisions and the rest of Turkish bureaucracy, their main task is to, to follow orders. So that's really, I think that presents a very dangerous trajectory in the sense that Turkey is a large country and we've seen that. In the aftermath of the earthquake, how incapable institutions, incapable rulers, how they fail the people at times of great need.
1: And, you know, looking at the Turkish currency, looking at the economy at the moment, it suffered quite precipitously in the last few years. Inflation, I mentioned earlier, is a very, very huge issue for people around the world. But really, if you look at US inflation compared to Turkish, you know, you'd be envious of uh, the US position. Given how th- bad things have gotten in Turkey, given the way that the country is being governed in this sort of by diktat, by you know, one man, as he said, or a coterie of people around one man, how com- might the economy continue to change in this way too? Because I know that it's very difficult to maintain a robust middle class or the same sort of structures which allow people to rise from the working class to higher levels when you have a situation when the economy is becoming so unequal. If you see another five years of the same sort of economic policies uh, which have seemingly weakened uh, the Turkish economy in this manner, how might the country transform from what existed prior to it went on, going down this path
0: well there's a lot of Optimism in, in Western capitals. I live in Washington and I'm seeing that firsthand that people working for the Biden administration in the think tank community, uh, there's, there's a lot of positive vibe that Erdogan is, is going to moderate, including on the economic front, right? And he put together a cabinet with moderate names that really fed that optimism. But I think judging by his victory speech, in which he doubled down on the culture wars by attacking the LGBTQ community, I think one can expect a continuation of polarizing rhetoric and um, policies which will further undermine uh, the pro-democracy forces. And he's also talking about drafting a new constitution, and he promises that it will be more democratic. I I would have been thrilled to hear that had I agreed with his notion of democracy, but I don't because he, to Erdogan, democracy means winning elections, and that's about it, and imposing the values of the majority on the rest of the country. There are no safeguards for for the remaining 48%, for minorities, individual rights and liberties, rule of law, separation of powers. So now why is that important? Because it, that's important for for the country's economy. Unlike Russia, for instance, we don't have oil, we don't have natural resources, which means Turkey's economy is heavily integrated with Western markets. European Union is Turkey's biggest trading partner. And that means that we rely on on these Western institutions. Turkey needs foreign direct investment. And if you have zero democratic credentials, if you don't have the rule of law, if you don't have those institutions in place, it's very difficult to attract Western foreign direct investment. That means he has to do something about it and many think that he is already doing something about it he put together a, an orthodox economic team that is led by mehmet simsek mehmet simsek was in charge of the country's economy until 2018 and he was one of the very few market friendly faces He pursued wanted to pursue orthodox policies, and he was forced to resign when Erdogan brought his son-in-law on board to take charge uh, of the country's finances. And now he's back. Erdogan brought him back, and now we have a young female head of uh, the uh, central bank, and people think that this is the most significant sign that Erdogan is going to moderate. It may be true, but I believe for only some time, because Erdogan will be facing local elections in 2024. And his next goal is to capture big cities that he had lost in 2019, including Istanbul and Ankara, which means he will revert back to his unorthodox ways. So that means I think he's given a green light to the new economy team until the end of the year. But starting from 2024, uh, he will be pursuing the policies that that he had pursued before.
1: You know, very briefly, because this aspect is very interesting to me, these policies you describe as unorthodox, which Erdogan has been pursuing, can you describe very briefly what these are? Because it's very fascinating that a country seems to be deliberately or indifferent, at least, to the weakening of its currency to such a great degree, or the generation of inflation over some time. But presumably, even if it's harmful to some segment of the population, there's reason that the government or you know people close to power may benefit from policies which seem to be, as you said, uh, unorthodox or even harmful to other sectors. Can you describe just very briefly what sort of path he's taken economically?
0: While he has been a strong opponent of high interest rates, he always believed that that would lead to uh, high inflation, while uh, orthodox economists are are saying that it's the other way around. And yet, those unorthodox policies that Erdogan had pursued basically uh, offered cheap credit to his cronies in the business sector. So for him, that pro-growth policy worked in his favor, because the country hasn't, yes, there is inflation, but many people say that, you know, Turkey in the 1990s had high inflation and it can, the people can live with it. So Erdogan thinks that, that this is actually working and this is keeping his base together. This is keeping the elite coalition that he struck, especially again with people in the business community that is working for him. But obviously, it's not. I mean, there's the d- double-digit inflation in the country, and particularly concerning to voters is the is the food prices, which is among the highest among OECD, one of the highest among the OECD countries. So something needs to be done, and Mehmet Simsek signaled that, in in fact, after he was announced as the the new finance minister. One of the first tweets was in English, uh, in which he said, uh, from now on, we will pursue rational policies. And that is a signal to the outside world, to the markets, that things are going to go back to normal. But I doubt that he will have, he will be given enough time to implement what he thinks is necessary.
1: So a few more questions that I want to ask, just to get your perspective on quite different questions. But uh, one of them is the issue of Syrian refugees in Turkey, and you mentioned earlier that this issue has become very, very salient to Turkish voters and very polarizing. During the second round of the election, I know the the opposition sort of made this more a primary focus of their messaging. And Kemal Kilic Darulu actually said that we're going to send all the Syrian refugees back, which seemed to be more of a right turn than the opposition took its first round. And I believe Erdogan at that time sort of took a more conciliatory view, although he also seemed to bring on this uh, coalition partner whose platform is very hostile to refugees' presence. Can you tell briefly about how Syrians fit into Turkish politics today, and given that there's several million of them living in the country at the moment?
0: Well, as I said Turkey is already a country where nationalism runs very deep. But for decades, the main target of Turkish nationalism has been the country's Kurdish minority. And right now, that's changing because now there is a significant number of Syrian refugees and also others from Afghanistan, there are from Iran. So this, another ethnic group, is going to pose a huge challenge to a country that is now not known for its accommodating policies vis-a-vis different ethnic identities. So it's going to be a huge problem moving forward uh, for Turkey uh, economically, politically and socially. And I think one of the most dramatic impact of that on Turkey's politics has been the rise of this far right movements. We have a several figures whose only agenda is to send back the the Syrian refugees. So this is something that we had seen in the European context, right? Particularly the conflict in Syria led to, and the the wave of immigrants, refugees going to Europe led to the rise of far-right Parties. In Turkey, we did not have a far right party in that regard, anti refugee party in that regard. But right now, we are going to be, Turkish politics will look a lot like politics in Europe in the sense that the anti refugee sentiment and anti refugee policies, anti refugee narrative is going to occupy a significant place in Turkey's politics. And this is going to make things even more difficult because I think one of the things that really poison politics in general, but Turkish politics in particular, is the strength of nationalism. Because if nationalism is very strong in a country like Turkey, where 15 to 20% of the country's population is of a different ethnic origin, like the Kurds, then it's really, it gets easier for populist leaders like Erdogan to exploit those differences to undermine pro-democracy forces. So that's why I get worried when I look at Turkish politics at the moment, seeing the rise of that anti-refugee policies and anti-refugee sentiment. So I think the main impact of the Syrian refugees has been taking a, a nationalist country further in that direction.
1: You know, Erdogan's has won his next term. He'll be in power for the next five years, ostensibly. If the country continues on the same path as continued in the past 5-10 years, what might we expect in in Turkey in terms of polarization, uh, economic changes, and also the social changes that you alluded to earlier in your comments about how he's shaped the country in a new direction?
0: First, I think the first uh, challenge facing Erdogan is, is the economy. The question is, how is he going to fix that? Will he be able to fix the country's growing economic problems? So if he takes the route of, let's say, relying on other autocratic, friendly autocratic countries like um, China, like the Gulf countries, to offer a solution to the country's economic problems, that will mean a further gap between Turkey and the West And that could mean further clamping down on opponents, further repression. So that's a route that he can take. But there is another route, and that is if he decides that, you know, relying on the Saudis, the UAE, and others, other autocratic countries is not going to be enough to, to fix the country's economic problems, that he's gonna have to turn to West and maybe to the IMF, although he had, he had said before that he was not gonna do that. But if push comes to shove and if he makes that decision, I think that will come with some conditions that will mean he will have to fix some of the country's democratic shortcomings. He will have to assure markets and investors that that uh, there is a rule of law, that uh, there is no arbitrary law, that he's not going to be jailing his opponents. So if he takes that route, I think the country's problems are still going to be largely there, but we could be in a slightly better place in terms of rights um, and, and the rule of law. So I think, again, a lot of people think that he may take that second route, and I can only hope so. But I'm not sure, because if, let's say, he cannot solve the country's economic problems, that will mean he will be facing a more unstable domestic context. And autocrats, usually when they face more unstable domestic context. They double down on repression and on uh, aggressive militaristic foreign policies.
1: And Gunol, you're a scholar of Turkey, but also a scholar of democracy in general. And you use a very interesting term, uh, competitive autocracy to describe, or competitive authoritarianism to describe uh, Erdogan's rule in Turkey. It's a very fascinating sort of concept because, you know, we think of dictatorships, we don't think of elections, which people think are you know, competitive enough to take part in. Or we don't think of, we think of maybe a press, but a press which is so controlled that you can't say anything negative or else you'll be killed by the dictator. But in Turkey, it's a little bit different because you do have elections and there's a press is just very pressured and controlled and it's a bit unequal in terms of access. And it seems like this is maybe in some ways a more sustainable model for autocracy in terms of uh than maybe what you'd see in Libya or Syria or countries like that. Can you talk a bit just about this concept of competitive authoritarianism and the threat that it may pose to genuine democracy, whether in Turkey or in other countries even?
0: That's exactly right, Murtaza. It's more sustainable for modern-day autocrats. Again, we don't have uh, have Hitlers, Stalins, and Mussolini's of the 20th century who largely used coercion. To remain in power. But in this age, relying solely on coercion or outright election rigging is, is not sustainable. There is a smarter way, even for uh, underperforming autocrats, to remain in power. Uh, and elections in that context is absolutely essential because they come to power claiming that they represent the silent majority. So they come to power uh, through legitimate means, and that legitimacy is very important for them. And after a while, after they consolidate their power, the only leg of that legitimacy remains the elections. But they end up with democracy without rights. So that means the only reason to call that country a democracy becomes the elections themselves and nothing else. There are no individual rights and liberties. The electoral field is dominated by the incumbent. It's transformed to favor the incumbent. Rules of the games are mostly banded in the incumbent's favor. Uh, And there could be some election manipulation. But yet still, modern-day autocrats, they don't want to give up on the idea of elections, they are risky because, again, they cannot engage in outright rigging, but they have to take that risk to be able to retain that veneer of legitimacy. So that's why elections are important. But again, autocracies are not created equal. We are not talking about Russia or China. In the Turkish context, in some autocracies, elections matter more than others. They are more competitive uh, than they are in other contexts. So that's why when you look at uh, the Turkish elections, you have to keep that in mind. So moving forward, Erdogan cannot eliminate elections altogether, right? Because I've seen analysis saying that, you know, from now on, he's not going to hold elections. They have to hold elections because that's their legitimacy depends on elections. And that's about the only leg that their legitimacy relies on. So they have to have those elections. And elections are popular in countries like Turkey, Uh, right? People, they might want to be governed by a strong leader who is willing to ban rules every now and then to get things done, but they don't want to give up on the idea. They don't want to give up on the right to elect their ruler. So that's why Elections, they have to be there. And rigging elections in a very outright, crude way can create a backlash against those autocrats.
1: Gunal, I had one final question for you. Uh, now Erdogan has won the election. He's going to be in power for some time to come. What's next for the Turkish opposition after narrowly losing this election? And as a general question about the future of his rule, you know, oftentimes in autocratic systems, The issue of succession is very, very difficult because so much of it has been drawn down to one particular person. If in the future when Erdogan passes away, if he's still in power, could we see a situation where he tries to create a familial sort of rule or is that not plausible in Turkey? Uh, What's next for the opposition and what's next for Erdogan actually after winning uh, this latest victory in the election?
0: Well, for the country's opposition, especially the main opposition party, the Republican, uh, the CHP, I think there is going to be a lot of soul searching. Because this is, although they captured 48%, there's still, and especially given the conditions that they had to compete under, it's not an easy feat, capturing 48%. And yet... From the point of view of opposition supporters, this is a major failure given all the policy blunders and the missteps and the problems that Erdogan policies have created. So the question for an opposition voter is, what else has to happen for the opposition to win elections? You have
1: If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app like the one you're listening to right now.
0: Double-digit inflation, you had a devastating earthquake. His slow response made things worse. Nothing works in the country. Uh, Major key constituencies are just fed up. Women are fed up. They're getting killed every day in, in growing numbers. The country's youth, they don't have a future for themselves in this country. The Kurds, they don't see a future for themselves in this country either. So what else needs to happen for the opposition to win elections? if not now, when are you going to win elections? So that creates a lot of frustration, which forces the opposition leaders to do some soul searching. But I don't think it's there. There's a lot of pressure on Kılıçdaroğlu to resign. And I'm not sure whether he is considering that. I think he should, because there are structural problems here too. And the main opposition party While doing that soul-searching, I think it should also look into the problems that it's having with the organizational problems, for instance. The CHP's party uh, local branches, they were not on the ground enough. There is not just the, the same amount of mobilization, mobilizing power by the main opposition, compared to the ruling AKP. So there are organizational problems, there are problems, there are structural problems with the country. So how are they going to approach those to be able to beat him next time around? So that's why I think it's going to be chaotic uh, moving forward for the opposition. And as for Erdogan, on the campaign trail, he said that this was going to be his last term but we had heard that before. And I know his health is not in great condition, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if he wanted to seek another term after this, uh, if his health allows. If not, what will happen? Is there a successor? I really don't know. But there is one, for many years, we thought that his son-in-law, one of, he has two sons-in-law and one of them was in charge of of the country's economy. He's now out of the picture. But there's another one who could make a better candidate. He is in charge of the country's defense sector. He's the one who is making Turkish drones. He's a successful young man, and he could be next in line. But it's really difficult to tell.
1: Gunal, thank you so much for joining us today on Intercepted.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: That was Gunal Toll the founding director of the Middle East Institute's Turkey Program, and a senior fellow with the Black Sea Program. And that's it for this episode of Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Oliveres is the lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show. And this episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating or review. It helps to find us. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Murtazo Hossein.